0: Hello, we are In Conversation, a podcast from the School of Social and Family Dynamics at Arizona State University, designed to showcase timely and informative insights from leading faculty, researchers, and other experts, which impact the ever-changing social world we live in. Here at the School of Social and Family Dynamics, we recognize that the land where we are hosting this conversation at Arizona State University belong to the Maricopa and Pima peoples, and we are privileged that we can welcome you to today's conversation.
1: Welcome, welcome everyone. My name is Aubrey Hoffer and I'm your graduate student host of In Conversation with the School of Social and Family Dynamics. My magnificent guest today is Dr. Michelle Pasco. After getting her bachelor's degree in psychology with a minor in Asian American studies from UCLA, she joined us at ASU to obtain her master's and PhD in family and human development. We liked her so much that we decided to offer her a position as a postdoctoral research scholar. Her work centers around using a mixed methods approach to understand the lived experiences of youth of color within neighborhood context. Her work has far-reaching policy implications and represents a really fascinating intersection between sociology and, quite frankly, political science. Michelle, thank you so much for coming on today.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: So Michelle, the podcast tends to start and end the same way. I'm going to ask you three kind of rapid fire questions. And the point is to just try to answer them off the cuff. These first ones will just be sort of light and easy. And then the last ones will get quick bites of your personal philosophy. How does that sound?
2: Sounds good.
1: <laughs> All right. So my first question is, have you ever had a nickname?
2: Um, some people call me Mishy. Like, so just like a play off my name, but that was basically it.
1: <laughs> I love that. Okay. My second question is what is your go-to meal when going out to eat?
2: Um, I probably would say chicken wings.
1: Like, uh, I love so chicken wings. wings. <laughs> Where's your favorite place to get chicken wings?
2: Um, I think like for like a fast food place, wings okay. up for sure.
1: I love Stop. My boyfriend is obsessed with thigh stop, So we were hitting that up all the time when they had that promotion.
2: I haven't had stop. I thought it was like a joke when I saw it. And I was Me like, did. oh, it's for real.
1: Yeah. <laughs> all right. My third question is, who is one person, real or fake, dead or alive, no limitations, who you would love to have a conversation with?
2: I always have trouble with this question. Cause I always think Oprah and I'm like, what, why Oprah though? But I think like, I love her interviewing skills. And so I would like, I think that's why like, I would want to be interviewed by her, but then also learn how to interview like her. So that's why.
1: I love that answer. And when I was starting to prep doing the podcast stuff, I started to listen to Oprah's Super Soul conversations like every day. So I am in no way as trying to say that I'm similar to Oprah, but I have tried so hard to copy some of the things that I learned from just listening to her for like hours at a time. So I love that answer. So let's get into the conversation now. So, so much of your work focuses on neighborhood context, but that made me really curious. Will you tell me a little bit about the neighborhood that you grew up in and what started your interest in understanding development through the lens of the neighborhood?
2: Yeah, I I get this question a lot because, you know, as Like I study neighborhoods, so like what made me interested in neighborhoods? So I grew up in a suburb of Los Angeles, and um, in this town called Azusa, and so I grew up in a actually predominantly um, Latinx neighborhood, and so I didn't really think anything of it. Like growing up, I you know it was the only difference was that you know I was I was one of the few Filipinos that lived in you know that neighborhood and that. City. like we had like I had like my group of um, family friends who are Filipino but you know all my friends were Mexican and um, I just grew up in that in that culture because there's actually a lot of similarities between Filipino culture and um, and Latinx culture so I felt like you know I was like I guess like di- like different in some ways but then there was also a lot of similarities that I felt like really comfortable um, and so usually like when people ask me like why do you study um Latinx neighborhoods I was like well I grew I grew up in one (laughs) and so uh and then in my so when I started doing research and when I was at UCLA I was a part of this research project that was studying uh, the everyday lives of Mexican-American families and I was just so I was like so fascinated by it but because I was like I was like wait these youth are like growing up the same way I did or there were like similar things I could relate to and I didn't know that I could do research on like myself like so I was so I thought that was really interesting and so I wanted to continue that work and when I um, got to ASU my advisor Rebecca White was you know focusing a lot on neighborhoods and I got um, and I was really interested on a contextual components in my research and so um, I, I started fo- focusing on the different ways that I could study neighborhoods like I studied them quantitatively and then qualitatively and so and in both ways like using both methods and so I think that's kind of how it came all about.
1: That is so cool. There is so much to unpack with this. And I guess I'll just start with the first thing that sort of, uh, I don't know, really came to my mind as you were talking. And So it's really interesting that you talk about the sort of similarities between Filipino culture and like Latinx culture. I'm very familiar with this because my partner is Filipino. And there's actually an incredible book that I've purchased, read a little bit of. I've had to set it aside, but it's called The Latinos of Asia uh, by Anthony Ocampo. And it's so fascinating to hear about how he sort of deconstructs this idea of like just race in general, um, which is, is just really cool. So I think it's really fascinating that you're approaching these issues of, you know, race within the neighborhood context, because so much of how we think about race is contextual.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, you know, growing, growing up, I was, I was always like, okay, like, you know, I, I think I focused a lot on like the deficits in which like, in the neighbor I was living in I was like oh you know like my I grew up in like a in a neighborhood where like I saw graffiti and I saw trash in like areas and it was like you know that was like a normal like a normal thing and I think my parents are also like like super like protective over me and so I think I was very sheltered in that way and so I think I might have also also like high-end like, oh, like, you know, maybe my neighborhood isn't super safe because my parents are also super protective, but that's also like a, like a thing about Filipino parents with their, with their Filipina daughters. They tend to be super overprotective.
1: Yeah, I my boyfriend has a sister, so I'm quite familiar with that as well. And I mean, it is it's fascinating for me to see kind of as a white person who just grew up in a different cultural context to just see sort of the differences in the family dynamics and the similarities too. Um but yeah, I I just have such an admiration for this work that really examines just kind of race in these really interesting contexts. And one thing I wanted to talk about was uh, your most recent publication where you were talking about the relation between sort of parental perception of neighborhood social and cultural cohesion and parents' cultural socialization on their children's kind of ethnic racial identity. So, that is kind of, I just said a lot of words that probably people <laughs> who are listening are like, what is all of this? So, let's just start by talking about that project, but kind of defining those constructs first. So, can you talk about what is neighborhood social and cultural cohesion? And, how, you know, how did you think that it would relate to these other variables in this study?
2: Yeah. Um, so, um, I just, I love this, this study so much because it's, there is, um, I was able to add this um, cultural perspective to what is normally a very mainstream neighborhood construct. So um, there's been a lot of work on just neighborhood social cohesion, which is this idea where having neighbors who share mutual values and trust one another um, is, is a important is an important goal to have in neighborhoods because like there's, um, it's associated with a lot of um, better outcomes among youth and also um, adults because you have neighbors that you can rely on and like, and you can rely on neighbors to um, help out if you need to. And so there is this, um, so adding this cultural perspective to it. So um, neighborhood social and cultural cohesion is um, this added part where you have neighbors who support and participate in Mexican culture, at least in this particular um, study that we focused on um, Mexican origin youth and families. And so I was so when I was delving into this um, into neighborhood social and cultural cohesion, I was like, you know this may this could be a, a resource to parents like you know we we think about a lot of um, cultural, resources and symbols that are more like physical, that like exists, but this idea where it's like, you know, you can go, um, you can have neighbors who, you know, you can, you speak the same language and knowing that you kind of have like those shared values and even people who aren't, um, you might have neighbors who aren't Mexican, but who appreciate it and, you know, um, and are well, like are open to like talking about it and going to like different cultural events with you would be really, um, helpful for parents to engage in cultural socialization. So, you know, um, ways in which they, in which parents teach their children about their ethnic racial backgrounds. So it's like, you know, parents already know, already have this like idea of their, like, you know, these are the cultural values and practices I want to pass down, but to have that extra layer of support would like then like um, support them like even more so.
1: Right. And I would imagine that that was would probably be, uh, you know, extra influential uh, for, you know, for instance, like children who are first generation and, you know, their parents have immigrated to the country. And just, you know, adding that extra layer of support within the context of the neighborhood would probably be so fundamental.
2: Definitely. Yeah. Having not only a parent to go to when you're, you know, exploring your like ethnic racial identity, but also having other people that you um you can have to to you know to talk about this with or to to guide you in any sort of way is also instrumental in that aspect
1: yeah it's really interesting to think about kind of neighborhood connectedness in general because i feel like for me growing up in you know largely suburban environments you know i had no i had i did not know who my neighbors were at all. And I think that that's been the case that a lot of people who grew up similarly to me have experienced. And, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons behind that. I think some people might say, well, you know, we're starting to live in this digital age where, you know, we're having more connections virtually. We're not really going out and meeting our neighbors when we move in anymore. Um, you know, but that might not be painting the full picture. Uh, but that's also why I think your work is so so interesting because really what you see is that no there are still there is connection in neighborhoods and that connection is so important to foster
2: even like just knowing that it exists like if you do need it like it's there and so even if you don't know your neighbors like I think there's like having that idea it's like you know if I do you know know somebody even if it's not like literally like right across the street but like you know the next walk over or something. I think that's
1: yeah, really important. Well, or just knowing that like the people in your community view you as a person, view you as, you know, someone who is worthy of, you know, respect and love uh, because there are times where you are in a neighborhood and there are maybe things on people's doors or porches that do not imply that they feel that way about you. And that can be an incredibly isolating experience.
2: Yeah, definitely. And that's that's why I'm really interested in this um this component of, like knowing what kind of sociocultural symbols and resources exist in neighborhoods. You know, in some of my work I'm really finding it in like the more business areas, but more and more I think things are existing in like in residential areas. Some may be more overt or covert, but I think, you know, people are putting up signs that can that can show like, you know, it's like what like that can signal this sense of belonging or feeling more of an outsider.
1: Right. So going back to that paper so one of the implications that I thought was so important in that paper was you know about how important neighborhood resources and community are specifically for Latinx parents and children. And that brings up the question of how do we, and I'm sort of thinking of we at the policy level, but we can also think of we at the individual level. So, how do we make cultural resources more accessible to Latinx residents? I'm trying to think like big picture, like how do we, you know, develop this?
2: Yeah. That's the question I think about all the time, like, you know, especially in my work, I think um, one of it is, you know, partnerships with neighborhood organizations, like, you know, people who are embedded in the community, they know like people who live in the neighborhood and then in the things that they support and they want the best. And so either it's like, like, you know, academic like academia part. Like you know, partners with neighborhood organizations. Um, I think there's this, and I um, I haven't studied, I haven't included schools in my work as much. But this intersection between neighborhood and school, where um, I think would be really valuable in terms of you know how to how to inform parents and children about um, neighborhood resources. I think one there was one partnership we had um, when we were um, when I was work when I was doing data collection with Rebecca, where we had partnered with the Guadalupe Branch Library and they had um, so many different, um, different events and things that were going on in the community. And so I thought that was really instrumental because this in Guadalupe, was they, they had a really great way of like preserving their, like, the um, different cultural aspects in that city. And so I think that the library was instrumental in that. Yeah. Um, And so I think those sorts of things. And I think about, you know, having, um, you know, making sure that when you do have like resources and events that are going on in the neighborhood, um, making them accessible, like what the number one thing is through first language, like making sure you are, you know, not only advertising or making materials available in English, but also like, for example, in Spanish. And so I think that is also like a key thing showing that, well, like, you know, we we want to make people feel welcome. And one of the first ways is them to making sure like, you know, things are
1: translational. Right. And I think that that's so important because, you know, I think there is this idea that like there is no community anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like there is this perception that, you know, we're all just in our own isolated bubbles. We just sort of talk to who we want to talk to, but there isn't this like greater community. But really, there is. And it's just so important that those who want to, well, first of all, those who want to participate in the community are knowledgeable that these are, you know, the resources available to them, but also that those resources themselves are inclusive of the members of the community.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about some of your work as a, you know, a postdoc where you've been working a lot in the Arizona Youth Identity Project. I was hoping that you could tell me a little bit about this project, sort of what your role has been and kind of the things that you've learned from working on it. Yeah.
2: Oh my God. This, working on the Arizona Youth Identity Project has been an amazing experience. I've learned so much. So um, the Arizona Youth Identity Project is a large mixed method study. So it includes two, it's about to be two waves of survey data, three waves of qualitative interviews. Um, So the interviews we conducted one pre the pre 2020 election, and then post 2020 election, and then the third wave was 100 days after the um, inauguration. And then the third thing is we have a photo voice component to it as well. And so um, broadly, the the project examines um, how young adults define what it means to be American um, and what shapes and how that shapes their sense of belonging and identity. And then we also examine what motivates um, young adults to engage civically and politically. Uh, so I was brought on to the project because I've done um, mixed methods work. And um, oh, one other thing that I'd love to mention about this project is that we um, we have we conducted interviews and photo voice and surveys with adults across all of Arizona. So it's Phoenix, Tucson, Yuma, Flagstaff, and Sholo. And so we really wanted to get like you know not only in like the Phoenix metro area but like all of Arizona. And so. I think we got these different, these interesting perspectives of like, you know, some like li- like in terms of young adults, like liberal young adults, and also like conservative young adults. Um, yeah, so I've been i I've had my hand in every single part of the research project, um, and so I think so we, um, the research project was also, we built a class around the research project as well, where we trained um, and taught. Undergraduate and graduate students how to conduct um, qualitative interviews and so we put them out into the field and they collected these interviews for us. Um, and this was in the fall 2020 semester and in the spring we, we also had a class where then we taught um, many of these students were returning students and some knew how to code and analyze these um, these interviews. And then now I'm actually leading a, a smaller course, in um, in how to. And it's an advanced writing course where now, since we were since we have the data ready for like some reanalysis, now we're all, we're writing papers. And I'm also doing uh, in the class. I'm also showing them some advanced. Um, tools on deduce, which is the qualitative platform that we're using and also some mixed methods designs, so. That is so much.
1: (laughs) That is just, I mean, that is so impressive that you have taken on so much. Like, that is just absolutely mind blowing. And I love that you take a mixed method approach because for me, I've largely worked quantitatively and I'm very, I'm at the very beginning stages of trying to tiptoe into some qualitative work. And it is just so different. Um, I love many things about it. I am confused by many things about it, which is just the nature of the beast. And, you know, but it really is only through a mixed method approach that we're able to capture the full picture of, you know, these constructs that we're working with. So uh, I think that's incredible that not only do you have that knowledge, but you're also training not just graduate students, but undergraduate students with that knowledge.
2: Thank you. Yeah. It's been, it's been really great to be able to be in a project where it's like, we're we have all this data to work with and we can combine them in so many different ways.
1: So you mentioned that you have done uh, photo voice methods. What are those exactly?
2: Yeah. And so I've worked with photo elicitation and photo voice. They're very similar. Um, so when I, in with my in this particular project, photo voice is—it's um, basically—it's a methodology in which you can engage, especially youth and young adults, to um, take photos and create uh, and share their own narrative and experiences about different uh, concepts that essentially the researcher is interested in. But then the photo voice allows them to kind of take control of that narrative because then they're sending their pictures and describing their experiences. Um, and so, in Photo Voice, in the Photo Voice project, in the Arizona Youth Identity Project, we had um, we had the participants send us daily. We sent them daily um, messages for 14 days. So they were all like different prompts, um, and we would ask them to send like at least one picture and then describe what the pic with. Um, with the picture, like a short description of the picture. So, like for example, one of the questions we asked them was, "What does discrimination look like?" And so they would send us one or more pictures, um, and then a brief description of that. And so um, there's two ways of analyzing this now through either the photos that they sent us and also the short descriptions too.
1: That is so fascinating, and I think that that it, that I mean that's really intriguing because you the photo element really captures a more abstract way of thinking about these concepts than if you were just doing, for instance, just a person-to-person interview.
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting to see the, like, the variety of photos that they send, um, and also, like, across participants, too. I remember this, um, this question that we were looking, I was looking at it specifically because I had put together a conference presentation on it, um, we had a lot of participants send like a, a Google stock photo of like, you know, if you Google discrimination and I was like, I was so interested in like, okay, like, you know, what um, like some people would send that, but then other people would send like, you know, things that they saw in their neighborhood. And so I think um, seeing the, the variety just like within participants, but across them too was really interesting.
1: So one thing that I think is so interesting with your work is these really policy-oriented implications. I mean, I might just be projecting like a kind of like political science thing onto your work, but is that how you've interpreted your own work yourself?
2: Yeah, I do think about the policy implications that, especially like Um, with the neighborhood, with my work on neighborhoods that I do and what this could, I think one of the things that I would love to delve into next is like, um, like environmental racism. I think that's, you know, they're like the adolescents know that they are, they are perceptive to like the differences that they see in their own neighborhoods compared to like wealthy neighborhoods. And like this, this exists at a systemic level, like, you know, well, like, you know, well, more well off neighborhoods get their, get their streets like fixed right away, they have more sidewalks, they have more trees. um, And I think, you know, and adolescents are very aware of this. And so I think that that's like one of the next things I like would love to like delve into, like, you know, what, what sorts of, um, you know, environmental, like this, these systemic um things that exist in the neighborhood that adolescents are you know that aren't that they're aware of and so yeah I do think of this in like this neighborhood level um where even like how zoning exists um and now like when I think about all those different things that come up with like voting and stuff and so um I think like yeah like neighborhoods have implications for yeah like ways in which people have access to voting and stuff
1: Right. That was something that I was thinking about as I was reading your work was, you know, particularly with like zoning and the sort of environmental discrimination and, you know, sort of people not people being pushed out of certain neighborhoods, but also people being forced into certain neighborhoods. And I can imagine too, at like the youth and adolescent level, you're cognizant of that because there's also probably a large chance that you are, well, you may be going to school with these other kids or you may be being sort of pushed into these other school districts. And there's like so many like multifaceted layers of this that um, I you know, I just think it's really interesting to think about how being in some of these heavily zoned areas would influence the way you think about yourself.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, we, you know, we also think about like how, like, you know, distance wise, like how can, like how easily accessible is a grocery store or, you know, I think, when I think about some of the, in the interviews I conducted with these adolescents, like, you know, they were talking about, um, like, there was a community center, but, like, there was, like, a water fountain that was, like, never fixed, you know, or, like, or they um, have, like, bus stops, but, like, some of them wouldn't have shade, and, you know, like, in Arizona, like, shade is, like, a huge thing, um, and being able to, you know, access, like, how, like how far like libraries because some adolescents like that's where they go to access wi-fi and even to just like you know if they want like air conditioning like these these things are you know things that they you know that they know about and like where they can like access them and so I think the next part is like you know how to make these these institutional resources in the sense more accessible to adolescents and like in their neighborhoods because you know in a lot of neighborhood work they talk about like um, like food deserts where it's like really like it's hard to access like grocery stores but there's like fast food places on like every single corner of the neighborhood and so I think this is also relevant for um, different um, social like these social institutions so like libraries community centers and stuff like that.
1: Right. That makes me think a little bit about my work in body image, where there really has not been very much work exploring sort of the relation between like socioeconomic status and body image, which I think is a really big disservice because we know that, you know, People who typically are lower socioeconomic status, there's less access to, you know, healthy food. And there is this, uh, you know, link between uh, obesity and lower socioeconomic status. Yet the link between that and body image has really not been explored in depth. And it it just makes me think about the ways that, uh, you know, all of this intersects, right, with like poverty and zoning and, you know, food scarcity. And it, in a way, it feels. I don't know. I don't want to say it feels like just like where do you even begin to solve these problems? But it really makes you think about how interconnected all of these issues are to each other. And really that, you know, it's not as simple as if we fix X, everything will suddenly, you know, be better.
2: Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's all related in these different ways. And and especially I think in you know, I, in neighborhoods that are ethnically and racially concentrated, a lot of research and all, like, even, like, policy really focuses on, like, the deficits that come out of these neighborhoods, and, you know, like I was saying before, like, growing up, I focused on, like, the deficits of, like, what I was lacking from my neighborhoods and, you know, like, my neighborhoods and schools that, you know, when I went into college, like, I didn't feel like I was, like, fully prepared, and so, um, so sorry, I lost my train of thought, <laughs> but yeah, like, so I think, yeah, like, I, I think part of, um, part of this is why, like, I'm, what motivates my work is to focus on like these promoting aspects because right. like, despite like, you know, all these like, like costs that is associated with these neighborhoods there are also promoting aspects that promote like healthy adolescent development and, um, and make you've successful and that's part part of it is through really through the Community and through the um, like parents adapting to these situations, but you know, we can do more to like to, for these for these communities and these neighborhoods where. Parents don't always have to, and youth don't always have to adapt to the conditions as is.
1: Right, like the deficit is not with the families at all. The deficit is with you know resources that should be there for them because they are there for you know other families. And I think talking about strengths, it's so important to acknowledge that you know the the strength of these communities and the you know just that sense of belongingness is so beneficial to youth that, you know, I don't think that White youth always get that. And I'm not saying like, oh, my God, white people are oppressed. Do not interpret it in that way. What I'm saying is that there is a strength in these communities of color with, you know, this sort of shared cultural experience and having these connections, knowing your neighbors, having these shared cultural values that are such a strength to these students that, you know, just other youth with more privilege they just don't get that because it's just not as i don't want to say not as important but there's just not that emphasis that there is
2: yeah and i think you know part, part of um the research that that is done with with um with these neighborhoods that are more ethnically and racially concentrated is that you know they say it's harder to create these um these ties and mutual trust with your neighbors because you know there is this aspect of you know in order to create these mutual ties and trust like you you it takes time and sometimes like you know if there's high residential mobility where people are moving in and out of their neighborhoods because they can't afford their rent or they're being pushed out then it's hard to to um to create that trust especially if you're you know, you're moving like every few years and then having to create that all over again. And so it's like, how can we, I think that's why we're policy and these neighborhood organizations come in to like, although like, you know, there might be high residential mobility in a neighborhood, how can we still like help people feel welcomed and like they belong and, you know, have that, have those, that mutual, those, mutual ties and trust in that
1: way. Right. And I think that is what is so wonderful about your work because oftentimes in academia, um, there is a tendency to put out papers for other academics to read and it doesn't necessarily you know, trickle down to the people who we want it to actually impact. But your work is so important because even at the data collection stage, you are making connections within the community and doing the work that academics really owe to not just the community, but to the world.
2: You. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I would love to be more embedded in the community. And I'm hoping, in, you know, once I'm in my faculty position, like I can Definitely create those partnerships and ties.
1: Yeah. And I have no doubt after talking to you that you will most certainly be able to do that. So I wanted to sort of transition now to our deep questions to end on. This is one of my favorite parts of the episode because it really gives us a chance just to sort of hear a little bit about your personal philosophy. So are you ready for some deep cuts?
2: Yes, I am.
1: <laughs> all right. So my first question, Michelle, is what was the best advice you got while you were in grad school?
2: So I had a couple pieces of advice that that were really helpful. Um, I think so. I think the most recent one, and I know this is relevant to, you know, all um, all students is whether it's dissertation or master's thesis was a done dissertation um, is better than a perfect dissertation because <laughs> I mean even you know one of my dissertations has already been published there was like edit like you know edits that had gone on um, afterwards but you know it you I think we as you know as grad students we strive for, perfection and sometimes it's like you know you just need to be done um and so I think that was like one of the like especially when I was in the my last year just you know dissertating that was really helpful um I think the other one was to also to and I think we talk a lot about this but I think later in grad school I was really I was a lot better at this but having like that work-life balance and that um and this actually came from someone who wasn't in grad school but he, like, he was just like, you know, your career isn't always like everything. It's not, you're always going to be your entire life. And I think that kind of stuck with me where it's like, you know, I, you know, may, like, I want to, like, I think grad students should always make sure to make some time for themselves. Like even like, you know, during the weekend and um, have like a stop time in terms of work because, you know, burnout is real. And um, you know, we, you know, I think that's like the nature of academia where, you know, there's this flexibility, but you can keep working and working. But I think, you know, making, you know, making time to, you know, do things for yourself is super important. And so I think that when he, when he like told me that I was like, you know, like, you're right. Like I should be more mindful about like taking time and um, having like a better work-life balance. Cause like, I remember when I started grad school, I was like, like, oh, I need to, you know, work so much so that I could um, keep up with everything. Cause I think I was coming in feeling like I was like at a, you know, disadvantage and stuff. So you, like to make up for that, I needed to work even harder, but you know, that's not always the case.
1: <laughs> I think that you've spoken to a universal experience. So I appreciate you sharing that because uh, it definitely resonates with me. So my second question is, what are you grateful for?
2: I'm grateful for many things. Um, I think one, like one of the things since we're in the topic of like, you know, thinking about grad school was having like such like a supportive group of friends during grad school. Um, You know, I was, I was when I would go to, these meetings with the William T. Grant Foundation. So I was interacting with different graduate students from other schools and like hearing about their experience. And I was like, oh, I'm so like lucky to be like, you know where I was, where I had supportive friends where we weren't like competing with one another. Like we're still like supporting, like, you know like we were like supporting each other's work and each other's accomplishments, like in my lab we would always like celebrate one another where it's like, you know, if someone like published a paper, it was like, oh, this is a big day for you, but it's also a bigger day for me. <laughs> like it's I think having that was like, I think was um it was really grateful to get through to get through grad school because it's like, you know, there's you're I think you're already comparing yourself to other um to other students, but to have that support system where we weren't um like even now, like I'm on the job market with like, you know. A couple of them were other of my friends but i'm like that forwarding them like like job up, like you know job ads that we're probably both gonna apply to but you know it's having anything like you know that all just like carries on um i'm also great, really grateful for my family i know that um so my parents are immigrants from the philippines and they don't really know understand like what I do um or like you know what my career really looks like especially when I talk about research when I talk about teaching they like can get a grasp of that but like regardless like they've always been like super supportive like you know they every like accomplishment I've had they're always like really proud of and Um, you know, I think having that support, like, even though they don't fully understand it, but like, kind of like supporting me regardless has been really, um, I'm just like, yeah, really grateful for.
1: I think that was beautifully said. All right, Michelle, the final question is, what is one rule you would want everyone to follow?
2: Um, I think the one rule that was, that would be helpful for everyone to follow is to, um, and I think I kind of I kind of follow this is like to just be kind um I know we all come from like different perspectives and have different like identities and um but you know I think if we are kind to one another and are um like open with one another I think you know we're all going through different things um especially like you know like the past year or so have been really rough um and so to just like yeah, be kind to one another. And so I think that that is the role that I think would be helpful for everyone
1: to follow. And I think that's a perfect role. So well, Michelle, I just want to say thank you so much again for joining me today. This has been a wonderful conversation. Before we end, uh, is there anything that you would like to end on any new projects or just any final words you'd like to say?
2: Um, no, I just want to thank you, Aubrey. This has been really, really great. And I'm so excited to um, see future podcasts that you do. All the ones that you've done so far have been really amazing.
1: Oh, thank you so much. Well, thank you, everyone. This was a conversation with Dr. Michelle Pasco. Thank you guys so much. If you're interested in contacting today's guest, you can contact Michelle at mcpasco at asu.edu.
0: Thank you. Connect with us and get access to all of our podcasts by visiting thesandfordschool.asu.edu forward slash podcast, where you will also find links to all of our social media channels. This conversation has come to an end, but our work here continues.